Welcome everyone to the Ship It podcast. After a little bit of a hiatus through the summer, we're we're back. Uh, today we're going to be talking about single page applications, why you need them, when you would reach for one, how did we get here using single page applications the way we do. Um, me, uh, I'm Brandon Azkov. I, I work at Rocket Insights uh, as a software engineer and, and uh, director of Webby Things. Um, Matt, uh, hey, I'm Matt Merrill. I'm a I'm a developer, mostly a back end developer at uh, Rocket Insights. I'm Adam Frazier. I do front-end stuff and component libraries here. And I'm Scott O'Brien. I'm also a developer, and I'm heavily in the user experience space. All right. Awesome. So that's our crew today. Um, so real quick, I figured I would go through a history, or at least my version of a, of a quick history of like how we got to making single-page applications the way we do today. So for me, uh, I was in college at the time, and it was 2005, and Google Maps had just come out. And it was the first time where I could drag the map around on screen, like, Keep in mind at the time, all we had was MapQuest. So that was this was not a thing. It was like click zoom or click to the right, and you have to wait for the whole page refresh and for the map to come back. So in this case, you could drag with like, you know, a mouse hand, like just drag the map and it would reload on screen without refreshing the page. And I was like, whoa, mind blown. Um, and that was what, you know, became like, how did they do that? Oh, Ajax, the XML HTTP request thing. So that spawned off a whole bunch of work around um, jQuery and uh, Ajax plugins and stuff that we use for a long time to kind of give that desktopy feel but in the browser window now it's still not quite a single page application because you would go to a different like if i clicked into gmail from google maps it would still be a big page refresh i'd get a new app you know in that view but uh and it would feel like a single page app there but so it was still a lot of server-based page refreshes at that time that's that's so funny that you mentioned that i totally forgot MapQuest was static like that in, I think, 2006, I was working in a research lab for visualization stuff, and we are doing a regional mapping tool. And the big thing was, are we going to do this with Ajax or Flex? Oh, my God. Yeah. So that's great. Great segue. I was going to say an honorable mention here goes to Flex for being out around the same time, which was uh, the Flash equivalent of making single-page applications. Uh, I worked at Brightco at the time, and they built like their entire code based on Flex. So um, I'm familiar with it. It did not survive in much of the way the Flash didn't. Uh, but that's sort of the, the overall vibe here, right? It was sort of like, how do we use web tech to deliver like a desktop app, right? So then fast forward some years later where we're all doing all this state management with jQuery and whatever kind of hacky solutions we have on, on the client. And, uh, and then Angular comes out. And we see this demo where you type into an input field and it's just reflected in your state's, you know, um, in your application's state. And we're like, holy cow, that solves so many problems. And we all jumped on that. And then, you know, it's unfortunate that Angular's first because it kind of showed some of its problems right away, where it's like how many times you have to work around these scope digest issues and trying to understand this underlying concept, the magic that like sat beneath Angular. So that way, I think when React came out, people jumped on board there because the learning curve was shorter and it was a little bit more modern and had learned, they had learned from Angular's faults. Um, so that basically kind of brought us up to, then there were like, you know, framework wars, framework fatigue, and now we've got Vue and, and Svelte 3 that's out. There's a whole bunch of things. But the point is, um, we sort of arrived at getting Electron, which was getting your desktop app built with web technologies that feels, it is a desktop app. You know, it doesn't just feel like a desktop app. It is a desktop app. So we have that. And I feel like when we started in 2005 with this whole Google Maps thing, we were trying to eventually get to a point where we had a desktop app that we could build with web tech. And we have that now. But I feel like we just kept driving straight on past that mile marker. <laughs> like, just like, <laughs> like, this thing's got rockets, right? Let's go off this cliff. Like, and that's where I feel like we're at now. Um, where I don't necessarily know why, why we're still going down this path as aggressively as we all are as an industry. I will say, yeah, I should give a little bit of history like why I feel 
valid talking about this. So I not only was programming during all that history, I like lived through all that pain. Um, I've seen this all happen in cycle before. So for me, like getting to that electron mile marker was like the thing. And then we got there and it didn't seem like anyone cared. No one got, you didn't get off the proverbial exit or whatever. It's like you stayed on the highway. Totally. And I'm notorious for being like a jack of all trades, but like definitely go after the shiny things. And like now for me, I'm like, I don't even care about Svelte 3. So that just goes to show that I'm burnt out. I've hit my jaded senior level burned outedness and I'm like, just vanilla JavaScript. Like I don't actually feel that way. But um, (laughs) the point is, is that I have many times taken that like single page application as a hammer and now everything is a nail. And that's not necessarily the best way to solve these problems. Like we built, um, we built a lot of, I should mention like at Rocket Insights, we build a lot of products. And what, the way I described it to my family is things that you would have to log into. Like if you log into a bank or you log into a Facebook, or you log into an app of any kind, like that's the kind of stuff we build. Um, sometimes that makes sense for a single page application, but sometimes it doesn't and it's unnecessary. And I should also mention that it's expensive because it's modern and you have to like hire modern developers to do that. And it's like a developer's marketplace right now. But if your developers are really good at doing that, they might build it really quickly, right? That's right. I, I think, you know, you become a hammer and it becomes the nail, but, you know, hammers are pretty good at hitting nails and having, <laughs> like, do it often enough. Yeah. Um, I think that's, you know, sort of one one side of this anyway. Yeah, so that was the general history. I, I think that Flash was like a single-page application every time you do one. It's a one Swift you're loading up in the browser and you're using the whole application that way, so... We, that was like the closest equivalent we had at the time, which is why I think Flex came out because Flash was missing a markup language and a layout. Didn't, like you had to kind of do all your layout programmatically, which was fun for me. It was like solving little math problems all the time. Like centering something on a screen as you resize a Swift. Like, oh, we're going to divide the screen by two, divide this thing by two, divide my object by two. Like, um, well, then Flex came around and had a markup language to solve all that. And it's like, this is going to be the wave of the future. We're going to... This is how our applications are going to go. Turns out it's really hard to update those things and like upgrade along that path. And then obviously the infamous Steve Jobs being like Flash is dead, and and it, so it became. <laughs> I mean, I, from my perspective, I was going to say I think Flex. I say this all the time. Flex was the first React. Flex might as well have been React v1 because you see all the same trends. Where I saw a lot of backend developers that actually really enjoyed working in Flex that Flex that weren't traditional UI developers, and it was strongly typed, and you had you know compile time checking. You had and you could you had all these things that people wanted out of air quotes applications that the web didn't have, which is the exact same escalation we're seeing now with React, except it's trying to build it in the web stack and arguably failing. So yeah. so we're kind of saying First like Flash might have been like the original <clears throat> SBA, excuse yeah. me. After that, right, I went on to work like, well, I went <laughs> seven years later after college and everything. It's like I, I go on and work as a front-end dev and we're using Backbone, fronting a Rails app, right, and like some small apps. And then ultimately we start building an SPA, right? And we started running into... That was a very 2007 sentence. Yeah, and, and why, <laughs> why did we? Why did that happen, right? Like, why did we end in SPA land um, from Rails? Because Rails was fantastic for our marketing site, for our sort of... We had kind of... Think of it like Wikipedia, right? So every... We had lots of uh, educational content. And we're surfacing that stuff through Rails, and there's like... You know, it needs to be SEO optimized and everything. And that, I think, was fantastic for that. There's no way you could ever argue that that would be a good idea to, like, implement as an SPA. You'd be, you'd have a hard time selling anyone on that. 
But we started to be like, well, now we want to build an application for students and we want to build an application for educators. And they're going to use that to read the content and like play with flashcards and do quizzes and things like that. And could those have been separate pages? Yes. But those individual things were highly interactive, right? And also highly related. And so it was like, okay, you know, we envisioned this product and we started thinking about, oh, is it going to run on iPads, right? And like, how can we minimize traffic to the server? Ajax, right? So I think that's kind of the, like, at least that's a path that I took into this SPA world, like why we're there in the first place. Like I'm remembering like the first time, like your example was Google Maps, but like we should should walk the baby steps through this. We all took small steps to get here, right? Yeah. There were even smaller steps before (laughs) Google Maps would be like, oh, you mean I can click that button and it goes and does something and I don't have to refresh the page? I remember like that blowing my mind and like just the gradual buildup of that. And like that interactivity was awesome. It was such a breath of fresh air compared to a full refresh of an entire page. Well, remember, and like you have like a fix, there were a lot of fixed sidebars and headers. And it was like, I don't have to reload that stupid thing. It can stay on the page. There's something like visually very appealing about that. Right. It never flickers. And then we started using the word round trip. Right. Like, what's your round trip? How long does it take? And a lot of times it's like talking about 400 milliseconds or, you know, you're talking about these numbers. And then you start comparing that to Ajax and you go, oh, I can do that a lot faster because I don't have to send as much. And you also mentioned like that visual appealing nature. Like when's the last time you heard a flash of unstyled content? Remember that phrase? Like, oh. <laughs> like that was like, oh, wow. Where basically, you're, you're going in between two things and it's like it flashes because it hasn't been styled yet because it hasn't loaded properly yet. Yeah. Well, you don't get that in a single page application environment. I mean, sure, you have to handle like loading states here and there, but that's sort of a solved problem now. We don't deal with that anymore. So that's another one of those like, let's check that box. Single page applications fix that. Yeah. So, okay, now we got that. Oh, well, um, I'm trying to think of other things that they solved at the time. Like how we got down this, like it started with Ajax, server load, performance kind of thing. Because you're right, like Ajax existed before Google Maps. I just use Google Maps as the oh, it was like, like the pillar the example. first one that was like whoa. Yeah, it was enough yeah. to make me be like, how do I do that? Yeah, you know. Yeah, it's a great time to mention um, an acronym that I I find a little silly, which is MPA, which is a multi-page app, which came out after single-page apps had been a thing and progressive web apps had been a thing. And when you look at that definition, you're like, so this is just the same client server model we've had like since the dawn of it's time like the, since the dawn of the web yeah exactly it's like a website <laughs> yeah it's just a website but it's funny that we call them mpas now because they had to have some kind of marketing term that i'm pretty sure google applied to it but uh so now we have mpas and so you have we'll call them mpas and spas for the sake of the podcast so you have we've had our mpas we've had them forever we can still write them like they're real quick to write that's like an established tech but a lot of the time we solve these problems with spas because of certain pain points so Let's dive into that real quick. Like, what are some of those pain points that drive us to pick an, an SPA over an MPA? Because I would argue you could go the other way that SEO, I know we have server side rendering. I'm going to table that for a second. But like, SEO is a problem and SPAs create a problem there. So, not only are we trying to solve problems with SPAs, we're also creating some. But for now, let's just talk about what we're trying to solve with an SPA. Well, I mean, I'll take it, or at least I'll get us started. Uh, this, this question has like plagued me. I think it's a different question than why are they popular because I think those are two different questions. There's what is the engineering challenge that we had historically that we resolved with an SPA? And I think that is a very different question than why are they popular. So I care I, about the first question. But yeah, yeah go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just drawing that distinction because, sure. I th- because I think they're popular for reasons that have nothing to do with the problems they're actually solving. From my perspective, the fundamental problem that we are still writing single-page applications for is the failure of HTML and the failure of the platform. Because when you look at the landscape of the web technologies – Look at what's happened to JavaScript. In 
two or three short years. We have Fetch in Async Await in Query Selector All, and we have, my God, what else do we have? Uh, arrow functions and spread operators and sets. It's like JavaScript is just sprinting forward, and you flip over to CSS, and what do we have? We have Flexbox, which is just universally acclaimed by everyone, even non-web environments like Framer and Figma and React Native adopt the Flexbox model. We have Grid. We have a subgrid spec. We have CSS properties, custom properties. Variables. Variables. I mean, it's just nesting. It's just, it, Both of those two technologies, because they can operate in relative isolation, are just sprinting forward, and no one's complaining about them. HTML are the actual, you know, the interactive uh, elements that we are building off of, unless we're going to just do divs forever, and it is just stuck, because no one can agree on what the needs are of the web and what the control should be. And so when we have these two really powerful tools and we have this thing stuck in the middle, we say, let's just go around it because we want to build rich user features. So l- let me jump in there because yeah. I think that's, that is a statement that a lot of people could miss what you're talking about there. Yeah. So I think what you're talking about, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is, sure, we had HTML5, we got sections of sides and all these like cool things and people started talking about semantics. Um, it sounds like what you're talking about is less about those things and more about the controls themselves. Inputs, sure, we have those, we have select, but... I think I saw you talking about the other day the need for some of these more um, interesting controls that have become really ubiquitous in app like applications as we know them that just don't exist at that sort of atomic HTML level. Absolutely, like the the most uh, common one I would say is the modal, and we all know there is no such thing as a modal. There is just div styled JavaScripty stuff that you're jamming in the DOM with a fixed position somewhere and calling it a modal. We don't have good uh, three-dimensional Z-layer APIs when we're building for the web, as opposed to anyone who's in React Native or iOS, it's sort of baked right in there, right? So we don't have that stuff. <laughs> or Flash, right? Yeah. We don't have that stuff. We have like window.confirm and we have Z-index right. and that's pretty much it. And so we're in this place where we want to build the type of user experiences that are coming out of the box from the walled garden ecosystems like Android or iOS. We don't have them and so we said, well, you know what? We'll just use the power of JavaScript to circumvent them and build the things that it's taken, what, years to get a dialogue element, and even now it's like, I think it might get dropped from the spec. So there is a dialogue element in case anyone is what unaware is, of that. What are some others, yeah, what are some others you talked about? Tooltips, accordions. Tooltips, that was one big one that I was like, oh, that's really interesting that we don't have that because it just seems like such a no-brainer to me, or a popover. Multi-select, uh, select menu. I mean, there's just yeah. so many, there's so many different things that yeah. I see. I mean, the number one thing design systems rebuild after the button is the select. Autocomplete, yeah, I, I mean, as someone that builds a lot of component libraries and thinks a lot about those things, it's like, I enjoy the challenge of building them, and I see where there's got to be a huge challenge in getting uh, different browser, like, vendors or whatever, or, and developers to agree on a standard for those things. I think the big thing is every company wants I'm their app... I'm thinking content editable. Content editable. I mean, that's like, like here's a feature that's yeah. like you kind of want something free form, and here you go. We're like this is what you guys asked for, right? And we're like, no, no, we're gonna we're gonna have to work around that. We have to write our own thing, right. to do that. But isn't that kind of how we feel right now, anyway, about buttons, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> if but, there's like reset so CSS states. for everything, right? I mean, we always think about like states as being like a boolean, like button is disabled, button isn't. But it's like button could be loading, button could be disabled, button could be have different texts on different things. It could have a state inside of it, like. There's a lot of uh, extra state that goes into that stuff that we don't think about. That's a great example because implicit in what you just said when you said button can be loading, 
that is an idea that represents someone's uh, optimal user experience. And you could have a, this is what this is space I exist in, where I say, well, do I want to actually indicate my loading state on the button as a part of a form? Or, you know, when you're working in, say, React Native or something, you might actually do like a Z-layer opacity and block all user interactions on the entire page for the entire viewport, right? So even that, that is like one microcosmic example of how we can't even agree when someone wants to, you have a form and someone clicks submit. What do we, how do we, you know, how do we cancel the promise? How do we block them from doing something else on the page? What, what do, how do we handle that? And no one can agree with it. And so we all just build our own, right? All right. So why, let's, let's circle back to the topic here. So we're talking about MP, uh, SPAs. Yeah. Why do you think these, the lack of these sort of uh, column atoms or, or like particles, right? Like these tags, why is the lack of these uh, bring about SPAs in your mind? Uh, I think the the primary reason is because if you don't have the controls that you need out of the box that come with browser APIs, then you're going to have to write them from scratch in JavaScript. And then there's going to be an escalation in the bundle in shared aspects of that bundle from page to page to page to page. And so if you're if you're also trying to handle your state in JavaScript and you're also building your custom controls in JavaScript, then so much of the user experience is JavaScript. And as you're going from one page in an MPA to another page in MPA, and you're just having to deal with optimizing. We don't want to load all the components on one page, and then you only need some on the other page. You just have all these problems. You said, look, why don't we just make a bundle? We'll you know, compress this thing as hard as we possibly can, and then everything that they need, they just have, and we don't need to keep on dealing with um, fragmenting the user experience across all these different pages. It's just easier, and then just separating ourselves from the back end entirely. That's, I think, the, the sell. I think I think that's really interesting. So the, I, when you said that, I was like, I have no idea what this guy's talking about. I don't understand how <laughs> HTML lands there. But that's, it's funny because I totally agree with you. But the way that I thought about it was totally differently. And I think I think of things mostly just from sort of anecdotal experiences. Which, from my experience, we're using Rails. We're serving up uh, bunches of pages, and just like you said, we've got modals on those pages, and they share certain styles. But the styles for those things like are baked into these little miniature applications that we're building in Backbone or what have you. And then those styles are like tied to one thing, while we have other styles that are being served by the server. And now we're getting these problems where we're running into like different sources of truth and developers hate this right so what's how do you get developers to like have dry code like we have the same implementation of a button you know that's rendered from the server um coming down from the server as we do in our little app that lives in like a bunch of different pages and maybe on the marketing website as well and so you start running into these problems and you go, we don't want to have those problems anymore. How can we get around that? How can we have one source of truth, one like unified code base? And I think that's kind of how we got there. It was also just the allure of like you get front end developers who get better and better and better and they start realizing, oh, we can do transitions between this and that and like build our own kind of view layer hierarchies and, you know, move things around on the page and model those like relationships in the data and I think everyone kind of just geeked out on the development, right? They were like, we can do new things, and the therefore we must. And we did. And I I feel like, I'm, I mean, years later, we still are, right? And we've gotten really good at it as a culture, right? We've built a culture around it where now we have 
so many tools at our disposal for doing this that like kicking off an SPA is literally a one-liner in your terminal now, which is fantastic, right? Like to, to come back to the very beginning of this episode, like you said, you're like, yeah, I'm a hammer and it's a nail, but it's like, yeah, but the hammer is like, it's so simple for you to do. Now, I think where Scott's going to interject is like what you just built with that one liner is not inherently simple. You just built this big ass thing, right? That's like, you know, the base with your React app and everything that does nothing is 400K or something like that, right? Well, that is the first thing. The second thing I was going to say too, which is the the absolute core of the problem in my mind is the elevation of the developer experience over the user experience. And that is the that is the thing that everyone's talking about. Where when we say, and that's great, I can make an app in one line, I go, it's great for you. Mm-hmm. And I said, then, you know, it's like, I was at a, I was embedded in a team recently that installed all of the things. And we've all seen this before. It's like the React, Redux, uh, Redux Saga, Immer. Then we're going to have a sort of fragmented code base. We're going to switch over to hooks. Then we're going to need context and suspense. We like GraphQL and Apollo. Uh, and you just go down and then listen, of course we need to have TypeScript and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And all that stuff is the developer's view of how I like to develop yeah, more layers between you and the metal. <laughs> and I just go into the analytics is the first thing I do, because to me, I, like a solution is meaningless to me without really understanding the problem. So the first thing I do every single app, every single design, I look at the user analytics, who's using this thing, where are they using it? What's their hardware? What's their software? What's their connection? And then I, to the degree possible, impersonate that and experience what developers are building as if I'm the person who is actually paying your salary. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm, I'm loading this up. I'm in the Midwest on an iPhone six with a three G connection. And it takes me 13 seconds to load a static list of 30 items. And you're just like, when we say, Oh, and this is so good. It's like, don't be in your mindset, be in that person's mindset. You're gonna have a very different idea of what good means. So this ties back to what I was saying before about like we're trying to get that desktop feel in the browser. And yeah, that's a desktop feel. Loading times. Like that happens, you know? Like <laughs> right. I mean, that happens for all my desktops. Open up any Adobe thing or Microsoft thing, you get the logo while it's loading and then it doesn't always take 13 seconds. Um hopefully not, but so it's interesting that we've used those things. Like this goes okay, this is a great segue into when should you use a single page application cuz I would argue that if you have to deliver to someone in the Midwest and it's a 13 second load time, that's bad. Um, if it's somebody who's like, I'm going to open up this, let's call it an EMR, which is like a um, electronic you know, me- medical record. Exactly. System. Yeah. So like medical record, they're usually these big cumbersome things, but most people just log into them once in the morning and are using them all day. So if your initial load time is 10, 20, 15, even 30 seconds for some of those people, they're probably not going to care. Um, now that's a different audience and you should still shoot for performance stuff anyway, but this is the whole like, okay, well, we were using single page applications for everything. Now let's, what's the baby step to fix this loading problem? What's the baby step to fix this SEO problem? What's the baby step to fix this? And we're getting there. But at the same time, it's like, these are solved problems unless you need that single page app feel, that desktop feel. So I look at like Figma. So Figma has an Electron app. So it does have that desktop app feel and it's great. And it's all built on web tech. And they have, for them, they're using, um, that's probably their primary application and they're using the web as like well we'd like to deploy this on other things so let's use the same technology to deploy to the web maybe they look at it reverse maybe it's web first and then the electron app but point is like there that's a great example of when you should use an spa because that's a you want an app feel it needs to live in a browser you could have it in an electron app but like maybe a a media site for instance 
<laughs> that you uh, like needs SEO, and it's like, well, let's build a single page app because it needs like that. You know how like when you're on YouTube, you have like that always on player that like never leaves the screen. So if you're like a popular podcast or something like that, you might want that on your site, but that immediately brings up that like, okay, well, I know a good hammer for this. It's a pretty shiny hammer. Like so, I and like it's even shinier because this one has SSR on it. So I'm gonna use that to solve this problem. And it's like in the end, it's like all of that extra labor, extra little things for problems that we've solved already with MPAs, multi-page apps, also that I can have an always-on podcast player. Yeah, I, I I, think I think of it, you know, I think we all kind of think of this the same way. It's like, well, what's the problem? Who's actually using it in the first place? Uh, there, I got to say, like, in the past year, couple years, I don't know that I've built many things that are consumer facing, you know, where it's like, oh, this is a public application. I don't need to worry about SEO most of the time. And I bet that's very common. There's a lot of like B2B work being done in especially here, (laughs) especially here. Yeah. Yeah. So we're building a lot of things where we can take a lot of this stuff for granted and we can go, well, what's your dev team look like? What are they, you know, we're an agency, right? So we need to take their dev team into consideration. So this comes back to the why maybe DX is being chosen over DX UX developer, experience. developer yeah. experience. And that's maybe the first time I've used that term. So, but I'm very comfortable with it. Um, Note this moment <laughs> in history. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, chalk this up. Well, the business experience, I mean, that's, what's, what's interesting about that is, is uh, I'm trying to think back. So this next year will be my, my 20th year when I first started in software and 13 of those have been very high profile consumer facing I guess we'd call it public um app you know I'm trying to think of examples like it's Wikipedia <laughs> I didn't work on Wikipedia something but used by the general public something used right? by the general public like I'll just take an example like if you worked for discover and you're building discover site it's like you have a lot of people that you need that are going to be using that of a lot of different um, diverse needs and diverse uh, boundaries on what they can actually handle on their hardware and software and their connections and everything else that you you don't get to prioritize developer experience. And so for me, what's interesting is that I don't I can't think of the last time I did anything B two B. The vast majority of my work has always been consumer facing, and that's why when I see the when I see the escalation of SPAs as an architecture. And I see it on consumer facing. The, the most notorious one. Remember when Reddit uh, did their rewrite, and uh, I think they did uh, you know React and style components. Was that my one was paying attention to this? I rem- I vaguely remember it. Oh, this yeah. is in the last year or something. But you should have seen the rage on Reddit from Reddit users when things were just failing and they had these horrible performance problems and everything because you had a bunch of developers at Reddit that said like everyone go all in on the React stack and it totally blew up in their face, right? Um, and so I think that's sort of the issue is that we've seen it become, oh, I work at some company, I'm building an internal tool or I'm building an, a tool for another business that needs to interact with some uh, data that we're going to share or something. And that's just slowly crept its way into the public sphere of the entire web. And that's why the voices at Google, like uh, Alex Russell, Adi Asmani, all these guys, that's why they're starting to prescribe what you should do because their quote is, the physics don't work. The The pace at which we can optimize Chrome is necessarily slower than the pace at which you are actually increasing the JavaScript bundle. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, I should bring it up real quick. So, um, since it's related, but like, when shouldn't you use an SPA? So I like had a few notes here cause I couldn't come up with a ton, but, um, we talked about SEO being a primary concern. And like, while we do have next and next and SS like server side rendering, um, 
options for that. I would still say that for a lot of people, if you have SEO as a primary concern, Discover is a great example. Like, you know, your audience is so fragmented, you can't just be certain hot, shiny new stuff just if it's going to have like a really huge impact on page load. Amazon.com, what do they say? Like every 200 milliseconds of page load is like an extra $40,000 lost or something like that. Like every day, something I can't remember some crazy stat like that. I'm making that up. This, this dovetails Jeff into Bezos you probably. are not, you are not Facebook. Yeah, yeah, You're like not that. Facebook. Yeah. Definitely yeah. not Amazon. Yeah. And so Call back to episode four. Yeah. yeah. So like <laughs> a, a few of these, um, these questions are like, I can see you wanting to like not build an SPA. If, if I was like, I'm thinking like as a business owner, if I needed to hire someone cheap just to maintain something, you're always going to find someone who's like, well, I, I can do like a node expressing or rails or something like that. They're probably going to be cheaper than your typical full stack senior engineer that can solve all those problems, has seen all these things before, knows not to go down the wrong paths when setting up certain systems. Um, and that, and then the other thing is like these enterprise people, I'm thinking like military government or really tight restrictions on like what you can have for dependencies. Cause like, I don't know what's in those, like create React app, one liner, great developer experience. What's in there? <laughs> I don't know. So you're saying that that's an example of when not to create? Yeah. yeah okay, like you have tight requirements right. over like what you're actually installing. Yeah, you don't know okay. what the licenses are. You don't know, like if there's like a left pad thing that someone can just change and break your code one day, like that could be a big problem for people like that. So uh, I can definitely see in those situations being like single page applications like aren't even on their radar, you know? Um, I'm trying to think of other, like, just telltale signs when like you probably shouldn't use an SPA. I, I mean, I have one, which is, and Scott kind of hinted at this when he was talking about, I just want to see a list of something. I'm talking about CRUD, CRUD apps, right? This is what Rails is built for. It's like, just show me the thing. Let me edit the thing, right? Like your URL structure on the client looks like the API RESTful. Right. Like it's all... You have to input a bunch of data and then you click a button. Yeah. And then you input a bunch more data and then you click a button. Like, does that really need to be like dynamically rendered? And well, all see, that, that was part of what drove all this in the first place. Like, I always go back to the Angular demo of like the form input because you're like, I could validate right there. Right there. Yeah. And then like everyone says that it looks great. And then you start doing it and you're doing it in the practice and you're like, well, I still need to validate, the, validate this data on the server because they're like bad actors. You know what I mean? It's like it's, this data isn't always going to come in clean. It could come in from a bunch of different ways. So while my client side validation is fantastic because I don't have to do that round trip to the, to the server. Um, it's redundant. It's, yeah. It's like you end up having this redundant code in both places all just so that you don't have to re-render a screen. Yeah. Which I feel like for this comes down to are we doing this for us or are we doing this for users? Like well, the user versus developer experience. Well, like developer experience for me, more meaning like my snobby nature. Like I run everything on an expensive computer. I want everything to act and behave a certain way because I live in this world all the time. But my grandmother does not care about the difference. If, if Facebook reloaded every time she clicked a page, she would use Facebook just as much as she uses it now, which is quite a bit. And, uh, which is quite a bit. I just got a picture of your grandma just, <laughs> just yeah. scrolling through Facebook. All just like liking everything and posting pictures yep. of animals. and yeah. Um, so my point is that like that's something that like Facebook decided made sense. And maybe it made sense from a performance standpoint. Maybe it made sense for uh, delivering to their end users or whatever. But at the end of the day, it's like how many end users actually care? about that experience and that that to me is like the there's two things there one is just the detachment i mean so much of the work that i did definitely in the middle of my career which is a very humbling experience if you have the opportunity i can't encourage people to do it enough is that i'm trying to think of um this was pre-rocket um i wrote a bunch of code for a client which i won't mention but they had me i did the design and did all, all the development and then i had to do usability testing and i had to sit there with four screens for an entire day of running four people at a time stumbling through something that I designed and wrote every single line of code for where I just integrated with um, a REST API that was from .NET developers. And watching people stumble around something that you've built 
and watch them get frustrated and talk to a moderator or what I don't know what you call someone facilitator. Yeah, facilitator yeah. and saying, I can't I can't get this thing done or why is the why is the button not working or where's the thing? When you watch someone stumble around with your work and you you actually have to expel that weird combination of shame and empathy, you you become a fundamentally different developer where you just you're no longer able to uh, see your development environment as this pristine thing. Kind of what you said where it's like look at us we're like sitting we have four thousand dollar laptops and we all have the greatest phones and we have uh, only the finest craft brew ipas from the local <laughs> place and we have the cucumber water from the bevy and it's like we're sitting here like marie antoinette be like mm, let By the, the present users eat cake rocket's hiring oh, yeah. <laughs> that's right yeah and if you want to come work here you too can punish your users uh, <laughs> um We'll edit, we'll edit that one out. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. But I mean, that's what it is. I mean, we we have become it, it's almost it almost bleeds into an economic conversation. We have so this is an industry wide problem. We have so so drastically elevated the supply side of the production and our insular views of how we want to work that we're just like installing a third swimming pool for no good reason. There's also that other problem that like. Most people have no idea what we do. Even the people who, like if you do like your typical software company, you have product owners and product managers, and a lot of the time they're non-technical. So they're relying on their engineering team to tell them what the right choice is. And it's like, oh, well, we could solve this with Svelte, but we're going to have to do a little bit of refactoring. It's like, well, how much is a little bit? And you're like, I don't know, a few weeks. And like nine months later, you're like, all right, we're on Svelte 3. And it's like, okay. So they also take our word for it, but we're always we're picking a lot of these choices, whether we think we are or not. Um, so maybe we're lighting, leading ourselves down these paths. Well, the, if you guys heard of the the term resume de- driven development, no. RDD, like yeah. this is a joke, obviously, but like this was a thing. Like, I don't throw know. it on there, then learn it. Well, mo- mostly like I I'm not doing this for the good of the problem. I'm not doing this for the good of the user. I'm doing this for me, for my career. And I always like people around here have heard me say like, oh there's a lot of people out there trying to justify their job, right? And I feel like there's a lot of that happening right now. Like, and not just on front end, really just anywhere. <laughs> Kubernetes on the back end. Um, but, like, there's a lot of that, like, just I'm flexing. I'm flexing. This is really complicated. I'm flexing. I know this pays a lot. I got to get this on my resume. Like, there's a bunch of libraries I got to learn. I don't that, know. I'm just starting that, to no, sound that, jaded. No, no, no. But, you're right. Like, that, we see that all the time. I mean, it's very, very true. I feel like it's true. But I don't think it's so true. I think it's very cynical. And I do think it it's actually cynical. a cultural thing. Like, it's one thing to say that that happens with, like, one developer. But that developer has to have the actual freedom to make that choice. I, in my experience, it's actually been more of a team thing. And in my experience, it's actually been great. You know, when we decided to move to React from Backbone, like, everyone, first of all, everyone was like, JSX, what? Why is there HTML in my JavaScript? And we all freaked out for a bit. But we all geeked out, you know, and we got really into it. And ultimately, um, you know, I think we did do it for the right reasons. But to say that, you know, what you're saying wasn't part of it, wasn't like sort of wanting to keep up with the industry, wasn't part of it, um, you know, would be unfair. That said, there is another argument to make, which is that you have to kind of follow the the bell curve, right? If you get caught on either end of the you bell mean curve, in your own career for the good of yourself. No, or, no, no. I mean, just... like as a if you're building a product that's going to live for a while, there's yeah, a point yeah. where support for those dependencies of that product yes. is going to peter out. 100%. So if you're on the bleeding edge and you're using Svelte three, you're going to have some pains. But if you're also using Angular one, you're going to have some pains. Well, yeah, like you can't you find kinda, people to support. There's it. a reason why the middle of this bell curve. There's a reason why React is so big and it's because it's sheer volume they just happen to be there right they re- now yeah they basically reached critical mass it's just like yeah yeah, yeah. The timing was great 
this is the part where I feel like the explain I, I deviate from the explanation that React is popular because React is good or has good outcomes because I think it's different than that. I think what's no, interesting it's inherently good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, when you take a step back, I think this is part of the conversation that's missing, which is almost part of it's technical, part of it's non-technical. Where we've almost detached who's building it and why are they when why are they building it? What are they trying to solve? And there's a reason why React has to solve problems like virtualization. Because they are monetizing engagement and they don't want to have an interrupt as you're scrolling through a feed. We need to keep you engaged, so we need to have virtualization. And we have problems that we need to solve that the platform has no interest. Discover doesn't need to virtualize. Facebook does, right? And there's a reason why when you look at Svelte, which is all, you know, the rage right now in terms of conversation, we all know where that's coming from, right? Or maybe we don't. Uh, Twitter? No. I don't. <laughs> New York Times. Rich Harris uh, works in New York Times. New York Times has a very different set of problems oh, yeah. than They Facebook. need these, like... Highly dynamic, little widgety things. Little widgety things, yeah. visualizations for an article. It's content-driven. That's great. I need it too, though. Honestly, the stuff that I'm working on right now, there, I'm running into all kinds of performance things with React and re-rendering and stuff that if I had Svelte and I didn't have to worry about memoization, right, and about like caching large chunks of data like there's so many things or like re-rendering like certain parts of the app where it's like well this is heavy because it's a big heavy graph right and building a visualization analytics platform right if i didn't have to worry about that stuff and i could let svelte just be svelte and do it i feel like it would make a lot of problems that i'm trying to solve better for the developer and for the ultimate user right because it's just fast right and now i can focus on solving something else or the next problem but i here i'll gotta take you on further there so View 3, which is coming out soon, has already outperformed Svelte 3 in terms of performance. You're so it's blowing like, my mind. So it's sort of like, there's a shiny new thing. What are you, you going to jump on? You know, it's like, I don't know. Yeah, is it, is, it was Svelte yesterday, but is it going to be tomorrow? This well, is the, the the VDOM, no VDOM debate, right? Because that's the, you know, Svelte, what's their, their angle is it's essentially just, it's compiled in, I guess what you could pejoratively call Svelte script, right? Yeah. And it's abandoning the virtual DOM. And Evan, you is like desperately trying to prove that the virtual DOM can be as fast. And so there is a little bit of um, it's competition. It's mar- market-driven it's hype that we're doing here, which is good. But I think that is sort of the core of the problem. When you were to – what you say um, or so what you refer to as – Resume-driven. Resume-driven development. development. I think it's more, the same, more or less the same thing, but I often call hype-driven development, which is this idea that uh, something's coming out and other people are talking about it. I'm a developer, I'm suffering from imposter syndrome or some maybe fear that I'm not going to be as marketable to other companies. And so there's this, like, it's almost like a nuclear escalation where everyone's chasing this thing. The anecdote I always tell is that I was embedded with this team and this was the last direct conversation via Twitter that I ever had with Dan Abramoff where he... He, he, he blocked you from yeah, it. <laughs> and it was, it was funny. I actually um, shared it internally, but he, he shared Emmer, which was essentially some mutable ergonomics on top of... It's Michael Westrates. Yeah, yeah and he was trying to take, make Redux still be immutable but feel more like MobX, right? And I saw that tweet. I was sitting in bed, in bed at you know, 10 o'clock at night and I saw that tweet, and I was like, this is getting absolutely out of control. And then the next day, I was with the team... And before the end of the day, they had it installed, and I was like, "This is this is uh, this is my nightmare." We're just someone just says something, and we're like, "Cool, we'll install tomorrow." I I, could, I couldn't even believe it. And that the conversation I had with him was, I said, "I'm paraphrasing myself, but it's something effective worth considering if you need a global state management pattern that is immutable, and then you need to install 
additional libraries on top of that to make it have mutable ergonomics so that it's actually viable for your development team, you might have something systemically wrong with your architecture approach. Yeah. And his response was, maybe you should stop following me. <laughs> <laughs> Which maybe we can cut that out. But I was I like, so. all right, okay. And that, w- that was the moment, right? Yeah. Where I said yeah. we, we, we uh, jumped the shark. Yeah, we, yeah, I think we jumped the shark a while ago before we realized it. But but the resume driven development thing, like that, it was, you're right, it was very cynical, and I brought it up just because I thought it would be kind of funny. But like, I'm not saying that. Like, it's not like people are selfish. I think it's exactly what you're saying. It's just like, whew, if I don't learn this in two years, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be old news. I'm not even going to be able to get hired. I think people fear that. I and had it's, that it, fear at yeah. my old job, and I distinctly remember getting really mad because I hired contractors like us now uh, to come in and build this hot new thing. With I think it was. I don't even remember what it was at the time, but it was some technology that I, I found interesting and I really wanted to work on, and I'd been very vocal about that. And then they just passed it off to a contractor that would cost way more. And I was like, what the heck? And so I was like, I'm just going to leave because you're not letting me innovate and learn. But I remember that being like a really, really big driving factor for me leaving that company. Right. I wonder if that's just a thing with developers in general, something kind of in our DNA where we're kind of, you know, you want to learn new things and you want to um, solve problems and like understand things from different angles. So it's fun to learn the new thing. But at the same time, it's this kind of space race where we're all like yeah. more and more and more next thing. Like, let's move on. And I don't know. It's um, I think a little a of that is healthy. But like, I yeah, it feels like we've like gone gone off the deep end a little bit. Like you said, like the space race. I like that idea. It's like, funny. Like it fe- when we talk about it, it feels like we've gone off the deep end. But at the same time, I'm like, I'm having fun out here in the <laughs> middle of the ocean or wherever the heck I am. Like, I'm having a blast working on what I'm working on. And it's like, do I think... I mean, is it fun when you're working on something that's super that you believe is super bloated and is not serving the user? No, absolutely yeah. not. And I think that's something we should all be striving for as engineers is like we should not be building something that is ultimately not serving the bulk of our users um, or you know, miserable to work on from a developer experience. I mean, yeah, you don't want to work on it if, if it's miserable to work on. Right. But I think that's you don't even have to make that point right now because right now we have the power. Like you can get money from a million, a million different companies are going to hire you regardless of like how good you are, you know? So it's like, yeah, they're going to let you do it whatever like cool way you want to. I think it's our responsibility to do it a way that's like serves the user and ideally is like serving them. Right. But because it's serving their users well. Um, So, so actually in check real quick. So I think we would all agree rhetorically that we are employed by companies that are ultimately delivering digital solutions to users. Users are essentially, for the most part, whether it's B2B or business to consumer, users are the reason why we are employed. But with the hype-driven model, we think we're employed because of our ability to keep up with whatever insane thing popped into our newsfeed in the last 16 minutes. And so I guess the thing I would say to you is, if we're all agreeing that what's in the best interest of the user is the thing that should be driving our decisions. How do we quantify that? How do you, how do we actually determine what is in the best interest of the user? How do we take the user's experience and turn it into a prescription for what you're going to install in your development environment? Like how do you get people hyped up over that instead of hyped up over Svelte? That's the thing that is plaguing me. I mean, I, I think you, you need to ask uh, personally. And, and I think everyone, there are different personality types around this. If you get really into it, you can look in the psychology and stuff and start like figuring out how to talk to people and everything and like what they care about. For me, I think anyone who's ever managed me realizes that they have to explain why, you know, we're doing any oh, given thing. Yeah. Because if I don't know why I have zero motivation to do yep. it. Right. It's like, 
why why am I building this? Who is actually using it? What's the ultimate goal? Um, but that comes from where? your jaded experience because you've been at enough places where features are just come up. Someone comes up with it off the top of their head. Some exec is like, I just want it. I don't know that that's true. Oh, okay. I've actually had a very like rosy path to where I am today. I feel like all the stuff I've worked on has been really fun. I just this way is in such a good mood all the time. Yeah. <laughs> you and I are like, really, yeah. that hasn't been my experience. <laughs> yeah. But I can't. I I mean, I definitely am familiar with the other side of it, and I've worked for some clients where I'm like, well, I feel like this is too bloated of a solution, but I like understand what we're ultimately doing. Um, but I th- I think people need to ask that. They need to care, and I don't know. I mean, sometimes I feel like if you're working for really large clients or a really large company and you're trying to service users, it's actually it's so much harder because there's so much stuff between you and them. That's a harder. I don't know what the answer is there. Like, how do you get in touch with that? Like, sometimes they'll have um, sessions where they'll they'll actually do UX sessions. And I mean, it, talk to people in the design on the design team. They're a little bit closer than you. If you're in design, talk to the UX people. They're closer than you to the users. They're real they should be really close, you know? So I think it's a communication thing really. When I'm coaching more junior developers, that's one of the main things that I always tell them is if you think you have a stupid question, chances are you don't. You need to ask it. Just ask why all the time. Just ask why, ask why, ask why and you'll be surprised at the answers you get. Number 1, and you know what? Like you might, you might, you might turn out to be the only person who knows the real answer to that. Like, like I'm, I'm just thinking, like you know, when the question, one of the questions we we're going to talk about, like when should you build a, uh, an SPA? I'm thinking about the project I'm going into right now, and it's like we're going to build an SPA, and I'm sitting here going, why are we going to build an SPA? You know what I mean? Like, I, I think, I think there might be a perfectly good reason. In probably, fact, there probably is. <laughs> Whoa. All right. Opposite. Opposite. Opinion. But like going back to what you said, like it's important to just ask that. Right. Like just know the reason. Well, like, yeah. Really I mean, it. the advantage of asking why is sometimes if you ask it enough times, you realize you didn't have to do the thing at all. Yes. I was going to yell you really don't loud. Even needed. Like, well, this is the five whys when you which came up from like Eric Reese in the lean startup or whatever it was, which is like dive into when you have a bug, an issue, something you want to dive into. But it's just as good for a million other use cases like this. Why do we need it in the first place? Yeah. 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 Who, I mean, this, it's so often that things just get lost in translation, right? Like the product person talks to the designers and they misinterpret something and they hand it off to you. And like, you just need to break down those walls. Ground control, our internal thing we use to find out like who's on the bench, who's rolling off projects, that kind of stuff. Um, that is a single page application. It's view. We've had other people who have like downtime who pick it up and work on it and like add new features and refactor some stuff, but it's still view. And it's view because Jesse wanted to learn how to write view while he was drinking his glass of wine at night. Now, which I mentioned before, but it's like that's a really funny reason for that legacy to stick around because you just wanted to try it out. And sometimes that's how it ends up being. Like these things, we live with these decisions for a long time because we wanted to try a new thing or it came from some higher up because that's how we wanted it or someone needed an always on podcast player, but do you? Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's just like, I mean, in the spirit of the title of this podcast, he shipped it because of that, right? Like maybe he didn't want to do it the other way. And like if it's one of these 20% time things or a hack week or whatever it is you got at your company and and it motivates you. I mean, look at some of the best products out there are things that people built because they just got jazzed about something, right? And sometimes we just get jazzed about the tech that we're going to build it with, which sounds so stupid. It doesn't. I mean, it, it maybe it does to other people, but it doesn't to me. It sounds yeah. very, it resonates with me in a big way. Like I totally understand that because I mean, 
I, I was just saying, I was like taking that CS, CSS grid course just because I wanted to like get sharp on that. And like now I'm jazzed about it because like it was fun. It was fun going through it. And I want to learn more and I want to dive deeper. And I don't need that right now, yeah. but I want to do it. On that note, maybe it's a good idea to start talking about like future tech actually like where where we see like maybe going away from spas or maybe there's some things that solve problems that spas solved but without kind of adding the heavy package and the other sort of negatives that we've talked about well i'll let scott take it over but we talked about uh, routing you know routing on the client has always been a challenge routing on the server is sort of just like just comes out of the box like <laughs> you just get it um but doing like that you know, keeping the um the url looking nice without having it have like the, the pound sign in it, which is what the hash history, um, you know, people really care about that. Remember like mod rewrite and Apache, like people really cared about those like really nice looking URLs that didn't have the index.php in it. So you would mod rewrite that piece out. It's the whole thing. So routing is obviously probably one of the driving reasons why we do a lot of the things that we do. Um, that was a really wide brush. But <laughs> so uh, routing is important. Scott, we had this conversation the other day. If you were going to, well, I'll just, yeah, go ahead. Take the. Yeah. Well, so one uh, we are, uh, Brandon, actually, I was going to say you treated. It was Ryan treated me to a Guinness. Yeah, and we were having this conversation uh, as as we do, and just do sort of you know after hours ranting of all things tech. And I was trying to deconstruct how how we got here. And, and one of the things I was putting myself in the position I said, okay, let's just say I'm ahead of an engineering organization, but I can't get you know like neck deep in the mud checking PRs. I'm you know wasting time in meetings or whatever people do at that level. What is the what is the like minimum prescription I could make on an engineering team to make sure that they don't absolutely shoot themselves in the foot? And I think a lot of times with the sort of react anti react uh, dichotomous hate that gets flowing back and forth, a lot of things fell on the bus. Like a lot of people said, "Oh, we have context. Uh, we don't need Redux anymore." You know, there's there's a lot of I think uh, symptoms of the disease that aren't the actual disease. And the, the thing I said to Brandon was the the most important and least intrusive prescription I can make to an engineering team is totally platform and ecosystem agnostic. I would say you can't install a router, can't route in the client. And once you pull that out of the equation, if you have to, from one page to another page, have to go back to the server, then if you were going to use Redux or something, you would always be limited to the scope of what you'd send on one page, which is always going to be limited to the scope of what a actual user can keep inside of their head cognitively in a given view. And so there would no need to be like splitting reducers and combining them and have all this crazy stuff. And then if you're going back to the server anyway, anyway, to fetch, uh, and you know, fetch data and render your view, then you've just all of the other things that you would install that you're trying to put under the paradigm of an app. I'm building in an app. There's no such thing as an app. There's no such thing as a modal. It's a make-believe thing that we've sort of said. If you took the router out of that, I think everything would just evaporate and you could say, you can install whatever you want. You want to install TypeScript for one page? Okay, I've so, had it. So here's where I, I think that's – it's so interesting you, the way you see that, and it's very observant. It's like, oh, yeah, you get rid of the router, state management all of a sudden feels like lightweight and fluffy. And I think a lot of developers are like, yeah, let's get rid of that. <laughs> you know, like, at least I was for a second. I was like, let's throw it out the window. But then I started thinking about the project I'm working on and all the utilities and the like sort of derived state that I get out of like basically slicing and dicing these gigantic arrays and objects and stuff in, in all these different ways. And I would need that functionality on multiple pages, right? And I need those I need that stuff shared anyway. And I I think what I'm getting at is like 
or what I'm curious about, and this is so much like the, the hype-driven development thing, I want to know what's like going on with Nuxt and Next. I haven't played with these things yet. I have done um, sort of the roll-your-own um, isomorphic universal app thing, and that worked well. My view on this right now, like at least the way it's currently loaded and it's loosely held, is that if you're not doing JavaScript on the server, if, you're not, if you don't have a single uh, source of your markup and CSS, right, then you're going to run into the same problems we did when we came into the SPA world and we're going to end up right where, right back where we are now. And so, like, are we solving, like, is do Nuxt and Next kind of solve those problems um, I'm, I'm seeing nodding. That's exciting. So. Yes. I mean, for yeah, me, yeah. Talk to me. I want to know. Go. Yeah. you you most recently worked on a next thing. I've worked on a next project. Um, so it might help for somebody with this guy's. Yeah. Like what the differences are because sure. me, I'm sitting over here. Like, I don't really do understand you want to do the elevator the pitch? Do it? Whatever you want, you go for it. Okay, sure. Um, so, uh, so next JS is a, um, you can think about it like a react based thing. Like create react app is a one liner you type in and it kind of walks you through the whole setup of a project. Well, Next.js does the same thing, but it installs other things for you. It gives you a router. It gives you um, some testing utilities out of the box. It sort of gives you, it's like the thing that we all went away from for a while, which is like, I want to pull everything of, that I want off the shelf and choose it myself. Well, I think people got annoyed with that. And so now we have these nicer tools where all the tooling is built in. It's performing. It's meant to run with the choices they give you. Um, so you can, you can do that. But the real key here, so I should also mention that Nuxt is the same thing, server-side rendered, but it's for Vue. Um, so next JS and then Nux was like inspired by that. So hence the, the slight spelling difference there. Um, so the, the thing that they solve primarily is what's called SSR or server side rendering, which is essentially, um, the way this works is when Google crawls a page, they don't click through it like a user does. It's like, they're not loading up a browser window and clicking through and like dealing with that single page app. They're hitting URL, end of story. Let's hit another URL. It's like hitting a refresh page on every single aspect of your app. Now, if you did that with a regular single page app, Google sees the same markup underneath it all the time. It never changes. It's whatever that original page was, and it's not great because obviously your page is changing, but the markup doesn't show that, so Google doesn't know it. So this SSR solution solves that by when Google hits the page, they're going to get the markup for the page, and the first time you hit the page, you're going to get that markup too. As a user, though, it becomes like single page application mode after you've loaded that first page. The markup underneath the hood isn't really changing. It's just you're, you're living in the shadow DOM world. You're clicking through. You're in single-page app land. Um, but when Google's crawling it or any like kind of bot is crawling it, they're going to get, they're going to drive to these pages where you get an extra hook, essentially, to provide the data that's going to land in your markup. Does that usually translate to a faster initial page load for the user as well? Absolutely. Or not? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Okay. Makes sense. Because you don't I was have to say wait. It depends, for... but I like absolutely. Yeah. You, don't have... <laughs> you don't have to wait for the JavaScript bundle, right? Mm-hmm. So right there, that's yeah. that's a big win. Um, then you start talking about time to interactive, but that's still a huge win. I think the way that I think about this, because all that's in abstract can be really confusing if you haven't gone down this path. But imagine a list that you get down from a server that just shows you a bunch of tiles, and you want to be able to drag and drop and reorder that list, and you want to use something that's expressive like React to to represent those things if you get that list from the server you're going to get markup that's defined on the server and you're going to get css that's defined on the server and now you got to repeat that same code on in your client right 
And that's where you run into trouble because you render this thing, but your client React has to like notice that that is the same exact thing. Otherwise, it's going to flicker and re-render that thing with its own slightly different version of it, right? And if the styles don't match, it's not good. So this is where I say the JavaScript or the, the source of your markup and styles have to be exactly the same for both. Ideally, you have JavaScript on both like the server and the client. So that way, when you render it, Whatever JavaScript app is picking it up, this is where he's talking about hydration. It it goes, that's the object that I'm controlling. And it's there's no update whatsoever because the thing that rendered it was using the same piece of code that rendered it from the server. The thing that re-renders it as you change it on the client. That I think is such is such a huge win for like just the initial rendering and speed of an application, but it can be it can introduce like development headaches and like subtle complications. Like if you needed to gender, generate a um, a unique uh, identifier or something like that and use that on the page, you run into some like weird things that you don't have to worry about um, if you're doing like an SPA. So there are these gotchas there. So if you're doing this sort of thing by yourself and you're working with like junior developers, they might break the app by accident, right? So these are the types of things that I wonder how Next and Nuxt like how well, that was going to be my next question are. is do they solve any of those they, at least in my experience so i've done multiple nuxt apps in multiple nuxt apps which is the view flavor and one next app and they're essentially getting first class support now from the chrome team everyone this is essentially where we are going it, to the degree to which i have my finger on the pulse of the future landscape which i think i have a really good one i have no idea yeah so. this is where we're going to go because i built multiple of them and they really the two of them are just uh have feature parity so like brandon said where your routing is just directory driven you make a file in a folder called pages and it just builds your router behind the scenes and then they both have these apis so if you're going from one page to another page uh there's an api nuxt which is called async data the api in next is called get initial props and essentially what that's saying is before I have some data dependency asynchronously that I need to execute on the server. So you got you to flip your mental model where the client, the traditional client server model separation is still there. You just have, it's a server server relationship and you're just leaning on the server where we would be traditionally leaning on the browser for rendering and fetching. So essentially you're saying you still have a single page app, except you're taking the stuff that can live on the server, which is routing and fetching and rendering and you're saying hey let's run this on the server and then give me only the things i need that have to go to the browser which is a lot of static html css and only the javascript for client-side interaction and that's how it solves the problem yeah i was going to ask like a philosophical question because we were just mentioned routing right like oh if you take away routing on the client then what are you left with and i was thinking about next and next where the routing is a directory-based structure it's a convention that's like that's the default way to do it and um Behind the scenes, it it figures out the routing for you, right? It's a lot of this magic in the tooling, and we've all agreed that we're okay with that magic at this point. Um, but now my question to you that's philosophical is, is that routing on the client or server? I mean, I, I consider it routing on the – from the user's perspective, it is routing on the server. As far well, as from a technology there. perspective, it's it's we don't even know. It's like an abstract thing now. It's right. Like, yeah, I mean, so I, I think if we want to get, like, deep in the uh, <laughs> philosophy of – like <laughs> Even the philosophy of technology, uh, it is – you know, it is like the the hybrid child of the it's the dyad in the force or something, right? It's the hybrid child of of you know some whole unholy client serverish thing. Um, but for practical purposes, I think we can just call it that server side routing. Well, it's weird. I mean, if I think about the way you used to handle a server, like a node server, the request comes in, 
Okay, here's my get request. I'm going to pull some query params off of that. I'm going to go fetch something from Mongoose or whatever, and then I'm going to return this data, either an API or maybe it, it's an HTML page at the end of the day. But in this next and next land, it's like none of that. It's basically like I have some functions somewhere. Maybe I wrote them in a utility file or whatever, but it's that one little hook that they give you. Get initial props or um, async, async data. data. And um, you know that's the hook you get to be like, here's where, this is my server. Is that one method. That's your server. And that's a totally different way to think about it. Um, that's really that's interesting kind of what we're going about it. Yeah. It's all like abstracted away now. So it's funny. I had down here like, how do we fix this problem? And I'm like, I feel like they're fixing it. <laughs> like, yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like this is a this is a pretty good direction. Yeah. Like it's funny. I kind of came in here all like grumpy and, rah, 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 and now we're talking about it. I'm like, yeah, you know, Next and Nux, they're, they're, they're kind of nice. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like a really rosy picture. Is the big, like most of the state management just happening by virtue of like like storing it in a database and then when you need it again you're requesting it from the database i mean we need to divide two types of state management right like in really concrete example there's what matt always says which i love which is state management that is essentially just a proxy for replicating your database on the client right there's that kind of stuff which we've seen happen in like um redux explosion but then there's also you have a responsive sidebar that gets you click on a hamburger menu and you need to have this is sidebar open piece of boolean logic that exists that needs to persist from place to place to place those are two very different things like async data is not for is sidebar open that you would probably still have redux or context or vuex or whatever it would be you would still use that for your global application state management from the client's perspective. Yeah, but it's like UI specific. Yeah, but if you're fetching data from a database... That's in your that server is, method. That is in your API for get initial props or... That makes or, total sense. Right? It yeah. does, except there are always gotchas for these sorts of things, which is like, well, how do you deal with performance when you're talking about sending and receiving lots of data? Like, if I just downloaded so, um, a really big thing or I sent up a really big thing and I have it in my hands... Why would I want to load that really big thing again? You Well, no, you can take care of all that with the state. So in Nuxland, it comes bundled with Vuex, which is like, this is the, by the same view team, but they're like, this is the state management solution we're going to give you. So you could have it all managed there. So it would be like memoized and it wouldn't get fetched again. And Or you could do it at a component-based level, but you have a few different ways to pull that in. My point is that like that function is sort of where you have to, whatever data you want to show in that markup, you got to make sure it's ready inside that function. So they kind of prescribe the path for you. I mean, this whole thing sounds very Railsy, which I love, kind of and is, I, I bet some people will not, will not love. But yeah, it's very. I love. I really love when there's a, like a strong opinion about how you should do things because as a developer, you come in and if you understand that thing, you go, "Well, this is Fast. how it should be. This is where it should be. It's not here, therefore, it probably doesn't exist." Whereas in something that's like hand rolled, or if you're using, you know, what ver- what flavor of Redux are you? You know, like how how do you store stuff? You might have to look in multiple if it's places. Custom, like that ghetto flux thing I wrote. Whoop! <laughs> <laughs> well, the early days. Yeah. Of, yeah. The point you just said, which I think is really important, is that how you said you sort of like that Rails e prescription. This is how we do it. And when I walk in, I know how it's done. I feel the same way, but I actually go a layer higher. I hate being vendor locked. When I see a pattern, I want to know. Okay. Let's say I ripped out my proprietary dependencies. Am I still using that pattern? If the answer is no, then as far as I'm concerned, that just has no business being in my bundle. And so what I like about looking at these SSR solutions is that they are hand-in-hand working with the Chrome team, and they are working on what the API should look like. And so you might prefer using arrow functions as opposed to um, and hooks as opposed to view single file components. That's That, to me, falls under developer experience. That might be your preference. I might... Um, prefer the other way but as long as we both have a concept of 
whether it's get initial props or async data, this is the overall pattern. We are still using directory-based routing. We are still fetching our data in a very specific API. We're still rendering, and then we're hydrating. Like That's the stuff that transcends whatever flavor you might prefer, and that's the stuff that I'm really concerned with. Yeah, so it's like app logic, do it how you want. Everything else that's, you know, sort of, if you were to abstract uh, common patterns that we see pop up in every app, it's like, let's have some strong opinions about those things and let's implement them. Shared, shared strong opinions. Nah, I don't want to share. Well, it sounds like we have different views of the future, but we're all feeling good about it, except for Matt. I'm just toping. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just messing with uh, I was like, whoa, man, man, I must have a bad look at my video. No, I'm actually really, after hearing you explain next... I'm really excited about that, yeah, that it's concept. That's like little... putting standards around what I feel like kind of it's yeah. I would say like the pendulum it feels like the pendulum swings, right? It swung way too far over to the client side and like that's a little bit of a step to the pendulum swinging backwards. I like that. Yeah, I think we're starting to like hone in on those conventions and you're seeing them come out of it. And it's this is a whole other podcast and maybe it will be, but it's like we have uh, the heroes that we have chosen to lead us are like, you know, Facebook and Google and People like, you know, Paul Irish and Adi Asmani and Tyler McGinnis and Ken C. Dodds, like all these people who are like famous for being like writing a bunch of tooling and talking about it a lot. And we just follow them. And uh, so we have to put our faith in the right people or do it ourselves. Um, we are running a little long. Should we wrap it up and do picks? I like, think we should. Okay. Um, well, I'll kick it off. So um, I'll, I'll pick one. Actually, I'll pick two because it's quick and why not? Um, oh, Okay. Okay, no, I'll pick yeah. one. I'll pick one. I, got I like I'm it. I'm going to make you choose. I like constraints. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right, cool. So I'm going to choose the Oculus Quest, which is a VR headset. Um, you know, Facebook owns Oculus. Now, they have two. They have the Oculus Rift S and the Oculus Quest. The Rift S is the one you plug into your computer, and you have to be tethered to, like, a powerful, beefy computer. And great, that's how, like, most VR is. The Quest is not. It's, it's untethered. It has cameras on the front of it. You don't need motion sensors in the room. They just added hand tracking as an experimental feature. So, like, we're soon not going to need controllers anymore either. You can just use your hands. I played with it the other day. Works pretty good. Um, works pretty well. So, uh, it's fantastic. In my mind, it is the console of VR. Just sold me. <laughs> all right. Mine's, uh, mine's another podcast. Um, if you're into audio at all and you haven't heard the 20,000 Hertz podcast, I'd highly recommend it. They dive deep into one story in every episode about sound. Uh, so there's one really good episode that I like about uh, audio tags and like audio branding and all these different sounds that like the NBC chime and things like that. Just really good storytelling in general, even if you're not into audio. Great podcast. Sweet. Um, mine is VizHub um, with a Z. It's uh, developed by my friend Curran, who I studied with, and... It's a fantastic visualization platform um, built in JavaScript, and uh, Curran's really passionate about sort of democratizing this sort of stuff and helping to educate people. So it's a great um, sort of initial platform to play around with, even if you're new to JavaScript. Um, it's great to play around with if you're interested in visualizing any sort of data or honestly just like playing with stuff and seeing like kind of instant fun feedback this might have been a good thing i think we had some kids over here from a middle school program recently that code and might have been kind of cool yeah. to like put something together quickly for them um in that but uh, it's a fantastic um fantastic effort by a fantastic person so i just wanted to encourage people to check it out vizhub.com viz with a z uh viz with a z i think vizhub.com just google it yeah we'll, we'll put it in the show notes yeah too. that's true okay all right i'm gonna stay with tech too so mine is surprise surprise lighthouse uh I hit on this all the time in Rocket Slacks. Uh, it is a auditing tool built right into Chrome that is uh, 
gaining more features and gaining a little more popularity as the weeks go by. Essentially what it is is, if I had to describe it, it's like pulling permit for your web app. So if you have your house and you know, it's your primary investment vehicle for your entire life and you're going to pay this thing off and you have a problem with the roof or your plumbing stack or your electrical, you don't want Chuck with a truck who went to a 16-week roofing or intensive coming over and just knocking away at your house. You want to pull permit. You want to make sure the work is done right. And, you know, for moving it over the tech, we exist in a postmodern hellscape of uh, <laughs> a, a, an elevation of all opinions There's over facts. Right. All right. <laughs> so we need to we need to move the needle back. We need to actually have some standards. We need to have something that we agree upon is uh, tooling that tells us whether or not we are actually doing our jobs right. And Lighthouse is the first thing I've seen that's that's really easy to use and just gives you this nice, beautiful green circles that says you've got 100% on performance or accessibility or SEO or um, whatever else the you know priorities are if you're building a PWA or not. And uh, it's just, it's not comprehensive. It doesn't do everything automatically. It does give you a list of things to manually check, but it is the first thing I've seen that I just stop right there. I go, I look at an app and I say, well, this feels terrible from a user's perspective. And I look at the DOM and I run Lighthouse and I say, these are my facts. My, my, my value assessment is based on actual factual reality. This is objectively bad. And so I would say, if you're a developer and you're sweating, you want to build something good, this is going to give you beautiful immediate feedback that you are actually doing a good job i want to i want to double down on your cell um so for developers who are working uh at a company or in a situation right now where you have like a lot of tech debt and you can't find the excuse to do the work because your product person's all over you take a screenshot of your lighthouse circles and send it to them and be like we want to make these better like that's yeah that's something that you will feel real good at the end of can we throw a little shade this is a great example we we recently did um lightning talks internally and we ran Lighthouse on Jira. I did it on the Jira backlog. And just do it. If you're listening to this podcast, <laughs> go to the Jira backlog, load up a bunch of stuff for a fairly, you know, you know medium to large size company, and just run Lighthouse and see what comes back. It's going to be fireworks. It's going to be fun. Yeah. yeah. I think we found the subtitle for our podcast. Yeah. Are we living in a postmodern hellscape? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you should just rename the entire podcast. I like that. <laughs> postmodern hellscape? Yeah. yeah. Oh man. Okay. Um, yeah. Just a real quick note on the lighthouse thing too. So we've been um, and the next thing it all ties in. So we were using that recently with um, with Zite and deploying it there. And I believe this is true. And correct me if I'm wrong, because you're using it. They do automatic lighthouse audits or something like that. Yeah, there's an integration. So every single. I mean, Zite's been actually uh, a really nice, you know, integration with Next. So essentially, what I've done is I've um, I'm building this app, and every time I you know push up a branch or something, I'm working where I'll get a sort of deployment URL for just that branch, and then I have. Lighthouse integration running so that I'll just see a history of all of my Lighthouse audits for every single branch that I've actually pushed and merged. And so I can look over and say, oh, I was scoring 100% of performance and then I dropped to 98. What happened between these two uh, merges that actually degraded my performance or my accessibility score, whatever it is? You can actually not only just look at it at a point in time, but see the change of your scores as you're working on your app. And so imagine if someone was working on Jira or whatever it is, you could look at the history of, oh yeah, look at how it went. It was like 100 and then 98 and then 92 and then you know what that 54. Reminds, it reminds me of Code Climate, but it's so much better because like Code Actionable. Climate, so much of it is like, God, really? Like it's you have to work irrelevant. around. Ugh. Hey, this line's longer than 80 characters. So you're going to want to fix that. You're like whatever, Code yeah. Climate. <laughs> like if there, you just like, it makes you want to like make a paper mache Code Climate and just beat the living tar out of it yeah. sometimes. You're like get out of here, man. Like it's that fine. 
Yeah. Holiday party coming up. I'm just saying. All right. Um, yeah. So yeah, I guess that's like. I mean, we've said it a couple times on this um, on this podcast, but Rocket's hiring. We're always hiring. We're always looking for good people. Um, if you think you'd like to work with us, then <laughs> after listening to this, especially, look us up. Yeah. Um, hit us up on LinkedIn. Hit us up on. Uh, whatever rocketinsights.com rocket careers insights. page yeah, whatever yeah. oh yeah. we have a careers page great I never go to the website anymore um, cool well, man, I work here why would I so uh, that's it I think so until next time when we discuss um, the heroes who have led us astray thanks everyone for joining us and uh, yeah cheers ship it Here we go. Here's that silence we're going to edit up. Oh, forget it. Yes. That's the thing that is plaguing me.